wild courage exists to galvanize a generation of men. The tools and courage to fight for what matters most. And tell the stories that are born in the redemption of lives and souls. Hey guys, welcome to the Wild Courage Podcast. Today, we're going to circle back around to my mentor and friend, amigo, Pat Puckett. And if you remember from the first time we had him on, um, he shared a little bit with us about his story from Vietnam. And um, I, I thought it was important that we get we get this story for Pat out there that he's willing to share with us. So I drove down to California so that we could do this in person so I could honor him and not have any technical difficulties. Um, I will disclaim that we are in a motel next to the freeway, so we might, who knows what side noises we might hear, but who cares? It doesn't matter. But thanks again, Pat, so much for your willingness and your heart to help that guy that's out there that's been through what you've been through. And maybe to give give him a little hope and insight to so that he maybe doesn't feel alone in what you guys went through in Vietnam. Um, so thank you for doing this. You're welcome. <clears throat> um, so in in the again in the first podcast, you talked a little bit about um, getting drafted and um, heading to Vietnam. And if if you want, we'll just kind of start there. Like, and my first question would be like, what was what was your what the process going into that, like when you were going to boot camp, um, where, where's, was there fear? Was there anticipation? I mean, this was early on in the war. Probably the news coming back wasn't necessarily great, but you were entered up and headed off to do it anyway. Do you remember what kind of where you were at mentally going into boot camp? Yeah, I do. Uh, I was inducted in Madera, California, <clears throat> which is. We came down, my grandma brought me down from Korsgold, which is on the way to Yosemite. And when we got to the induction center in Madera, of all towns, which is just a hick town from the Grapes of Wrath, <laughs> there were hippies protesting the war, like four of them. And so there was a fight. And my grandmother and I both let them know that, that what they were doing was wrong. And then my grandmother, I hit a guy... I think you've seen those glass blocks that are around doors that you can't see through. Oh, yeah. I run a guy into that, and then they left us alone because hippies are supposed to be peaceful, right? Right. Well, okay. My grandma went through the door and wanted to know who was running the place. I said, Grandma, don't do not do it, and she's madder than hell. So she goes and finds the head guy, <laughs> rips him, and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not going to do well in this army because yeah. I write the first day I'm raising hell. <laughs> So anyway, I get drafted on 4th of July weekend. Wow. There's a lot of red flags here. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what I personally experienced, okay? Because everybody has their own story. And all sure. I'm doing is sharing it because, like you said, there's one guy out there that might say, you know what, you're right. Other guys will say, quit whining. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. So anyway, on Independence Day, I'm drafted. So there's your flag. 
So now we sit in the barracks all weekend at Fort Ord waiting everybody to come back because they're off on the weekend, and we got drafted. So right away they shipped us to Fort Lewis, Washington. That's where I did my boot camp. And how long was that? Your training before Vietnam is six months. You have uh, two months of... First you go to boot camp, which is is uh, just, you know, physical fitness, basically. And they're trying to make everybody the same because they color you green and they shave your head and everybody's supposed to be a team and all that. And I wasn't buying it. But anyway, I hated it every single day. Then you get a break and then you go to AIT, which is your individual training for whatever it is your job's going to be. So I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Did, did they pick that for you? Yes. Yeah. And the way I get it, I'm not sure, but they give you a test when you when you get drafted, and it's like an aptitude test. Mm. And I think that's how they decide who goes where. Sure. But on that note, most of the guys drafted were middle class or poor, and the Army was very, very prejudiced. And that's why so many black kids got put in infantry, as far as I'm concerned, because they were nothing more than fodder, and they needed humans in front. And I know now that that's why mm. they're poor kids from the cities, and they weren't well-educated, and they made them infantry. Because there's all sorts of exemptions, right? If you're going to college, you didn't get drafted. If all you... sorts of things. And yeah. they, this was before the lottery. They had a lottery after a while. There was no lottery when I got drafted. You just flat got drafted, mm. period. So on that note, then I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and learned the artillery deal, which is out in the front supporting the infantry basically then you got 30 days off and then you go to vietnam so i'm on a commercial airline which i'm told by the who's in the know remember i'm a hick i'm just a country kid never been on a plane in my life like everybody else your first plane ride was to vietnam yes and uh the plane they told me was owned by lyndon uh lady bird johnson in other words there was all kinds of contractors in the wars always has been, that made money off the wars. Well, that Tiger Airlines was supposed to belong to her. True or not, I don't know. doesn't matter. So now we're going over and we got to refuel. So we land in Japan. And usually when you refuel a plane, evidently everybody has to get off for safety reasons. They said, you will not be getting off this plane. We landed in Japan on Pearl Harbor Day. Really? And I'm like, there's your second flag. I'm thinking, this ain't going well. Well, of course, there's a bunch of young Japanese people protesting the war. So now I get to Vietnam, and they fly you into the south end of the country. Cameron Bay is where we landed. And you're getting off a big commercial plane. Then you get put on a big military plane, and you start going north. Then you're off of that plane and into a truck, and you drive to a place in the rear and they put you on a helicopter and the helicopter takes you to the hill you're going to be stationed on so that's reverse progression as you can imagine you keep getting it pretty soon you the next thing would be walking so i knew i was not going to be in the rear what <clears throat> did you did you just have i mean you're did, were any of the guys who were in boot camp were they with you on that plane like or is this all new people every stage of this is you don't know what's going on, who you're with. Every time. I, I would imagine that you got to have a bellyache, right? The well, whole flight over there? Yeah. 
Yeah, you're you're nervous, of course, and you don't know what to expect because you've heard all these stories when you're back in the world. You know, everybody tells you all this stuff. Well, what you find out later is that everybody went to a different place, so their story wasn't your story. Like guys on boats in the Mekong Delta, they were going around on boats with machine guns. We never saw a boat. Yeah, we were up in the hills. What? How old was the war when you went in? Probably uh, seven years, something like that. There was two phases of the war. The first phase was the was the beginning, of course, and then the the worst point was the year before I got there. It was called Tet, and it was a holiday for the communists, and that's when they tried to overrun everybody. Well, I wasn't in on that. I probably wouldn't be here if I was. Okay, after that, then I went, and that's when Johnson took over, and he had to have a brand new deal going. And I found out later that we were firing into the countries outside of Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, places like that. And I'm not sure exactly where I was. All I know, I was up in the hills, and we were shooting into across the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is the border. Thousands of rounds. Okay, that's why these kids a day are finding rounds still there. Anyway, now I'm on the hill. So here's the deal. In a war, a draftee, which is me, is called U.S., that's what that means. You were drafted. So everybody on the Hill knows what your status was. So there was U.S. drafted. NG was National Guard. And some National Guards were actually drafted and some joined. I don't know why, but they volunteered, I guess what I'm saying. Then there was RA, which means regular army. And these were kids that actually joined the army on purpose, which is a longer commitment than being drafted. It's like four years instead of two. Then there's called a shake and bake. And that's a guy that signs up and then he also signs up for an extra schooling time rather than boot camp and training. And he comes out a sergeant. Now he may be 20 years old, but because he went to that extra mm-hmm. eight weeks, and as it turns out, they were either lazy because they didn't want to do the physical work and they were scared of getting killed, or they were thinking about being a lifer. Now, a lifer is a guy that's in a career soldier, 30 years, whatever. Right. Okay, the lifers were all the NCOs, sergeants, all kinds of sergeants. And above them were officers. Okay, the sergeants, which were lifers, hated the U.S. draftees. Why do you think that is? Because we didn't join. Oh, these were all veterans from Korea, World War Two. By God, when we were young, we joined, you know, and it's like, well, so there's a sense of like, if you cared about your country, you would join, you wouldn't have got drafted. And because you came here kicking and screaming, we're going to discriminate you. We don't like you because you don't have what it what we have inside of us, which is this noble Mm -hmm. word. We're we're God country core type mentality, right? That's exactly it. And they were prejudiced against U.S. draftees. They hated us. All they did was think we were hippies. And they didn't even know, you know, what we were, who we were from, or nothing. Just a bunch of scared kids. A bunch of kids that got drafted. So anyway, so I'm drafted. And you've got this prejudice going. So I'll give you the first example of prejudice. And there was a sergeant. He was probably an E6, which is kind of up there. And they always protected each other. Lifers were never around 
when you were receiving income. They were never close by a cannon during a fire mission because they didn't want to get killed. And they would, they had this little brotherhood thing where they took care of each other because we were dispendable and they weren't because they were in for 30 years and they got double the money and they were married with dependents. So they made a lot of money going to war and they didn't want to be home anyway. Okay. This is that part you think I'm whining, but it's not. So this one E6, he'd get drunk or high and he'd come into our hooch, which is an underground house. And each cannon had a house where the crew that worked the cannon lived. And he would come down the stairs, walk right by our leader, which was a shake and bake, which was scared of a lifer. And he would get in the face of us enlisted men, the U.S. draftees. And you got to know that if you hit an NCO, you're, you're busted big yeah, time. Yeah, you're in trouble. And he knew that. So he would get right up in your face and yell at you and call you a hippie and you're worthless and da-da-da-da-da. Well, we had a kid named Tex. I showed you his picture. And he was just a regular country boy. He'd gotten the dear John. His wife was spending the extra money he was making with her new boyfriend. Mm. Everything that could go wrong happened to Tex, right? Yep. So he got in Tex's face. And I was watching Tex because I was thinking he was going to take him. He just stared at him. He never said a word. So this guy finally leaves. And every night you had what they called a mic mic, which is a mad minute. And if you wanted to... It would be, say, 2.07 a.m. Whoever wanted to would get their weapon, stand on the perimeter, and fire at the same time. And the enemy never knew when we were going to do it. That's what, And you did it for one minute. It made you clear your weapon, make sure it was working, get to shoot guns, whatever. Well, he took his rifle, his M16. He walked out of the hooch. Nobody thought a thing of it. Well, he knew that that lifer was in the detection center, the place where the college guys are that do the math. Mm-hmm. They always had to have an NCO in there, and evidently it was his turn. Of course, it's underground and protected. So Tex just walked down the steps, waited till he walked past him, because the steps are diverted so that a round can't go in. You know what oh, I mean? around the corner. <laughs> and, you know, maybe you've heard of fragging, but it used to be a big deal with the infantry where they'd put a grenade in a guy's deal and kill him. Well, Tex didn't do that. So when he got a line of fire from about eight feet away, he shot him in the back of the head and blew his head off. What? Tex did. Okay, so now he just stands up because, see, all these guns are going off at the same time. So he just stands up, walks up the stairs, and is going to go back to the hooch. Hank Massengale from Pennsylvania saw Tex come out of that hooch. Knew he did it. Tex made eye contact with Hank. Hank was just a regular private like us, but he got scared because Tex had lost it. So he made a note and put it on the captain's bunk somehow and told him who did it. So they came and got Tex, and they told us we had to make him talk, but they said he's going to Japan for battle fatigue or whatever you call it, and they figured he could go home. In other words, he could have got away with it. But like I told you earlier, nobody ever knew what happened to him. Wow. He was just, Tex was just gone. Well, it's like temporary insanity now, mm-hmm. battle fatigue then. He lost it. So Hank, my friend, I'm, he got held over longer than I did, and we were supposed to go home. He Because they kept a deposition, and they used him for the court thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
And so he said, would you mind getting a hold of my folks when you get home? Call them, tell them I'm okay. And I said, sure. Well, stupid me, I get home and I call them. They pick up the phone. I say, my name's Pat and I'm a friend of Hank's. Phone drops. They think he died. And that's not how you tell people their children are dead. So now I hear the mom in the background. So the father finally gets back on the phone, and I said, hey, you got to listen. He's fine. He's fine. I'm just doing him a favor. Oh, man. Just wow. shattered me. Yeah. Because it's like a wake-up call, because I didn't think a thing of it. So anyway, I got them taken care of, and they understood, and that's why they haven't heard from him, because they wouldn't let him ride home. They wouldn't let him do anything. Well, of course, I never saw and or heard of him again the day I left Vietnam. So that's one thing. And what I'm telling you about is the things that I know that were done wrong in the war. And I'm sure every war has had the same thing. So harassment and prejudice was a big deal. Another thing. And that's got to mess with, like, your own view of yourself, right? Like, if somebody that's in a position above you, whether you don't like them or not, you're being told this over and over and over again, it reduces what you think of your own life as at some point, right? Especially under those circumstances. I mean, it's got to be... Well, it made us mad. Yeah. I mean, you're like, yeah. I'm a 19-year-old kid. I don't right. want to be here. Yeah. It made us mad. I'll give you an example. They brought us what they called hot A's, which means a insulated can full of food. And, and a general came out because they wanted to get their picture out in the bush and show us. They set up this thing with this hot food instead of sea rations. Not one draftee walked down to that food. And we never even had to tell each other. We refused. You're like, I'm not because it, playing the game. I ain't doing it. You know, we refused to move. Well, the famous saying in Vietnam was, what are you going to do, send me to Vietnam? Because we didn't care. <laughs> yeah. And you got to know that after Tex <clears throat> shot that guy, everything got real ugly on the hill because they were twitchy then. And I personally made a big deal about letting everybody know how glad I was he killed him. So the interesting thing now, 50-some years later, is that when they put you on guard duty, it was usually two guys together. All the draftees started getting put by themselves on guard duty. Hmm. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But the fact is, it's not right. And they kept saying we're short men, this and that. That's not true. No, they... That was prejudice. What, uh, to jump back into, like, some practical things, what was your job in Vietnam? What were you... Assigned to well, and your I st- team. I started off on a cannon, and I could load really fast. That hand eye, whatever, because I knew how to rope. That's what I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so a cannon would shoot, and then as it recoiled, you could get rid of the shell and put another one in before it went back into position, which wow. means you could fire really fast. Fire at will. You've heard that deal. Well, rapid fire is when you can load faster than anybody else. So you know, as cowboys, we try to be the best. So I was after I got sick and came back, then they put me on a radio because I could talk fast. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an auctioneer, so I used to practice doing the Hail Mary really fast. Hail Mary, full of grace, here we are. You know, when I do this Catholic thing. So they knew that I had a, I could react quick and I could talk fast. So they put me on the radio, which means I took care of all the communication. Plus, but you're still right there. You're right next to the cannon. I'm right next to him. Yeah. And I also knew every part of the cannon, so if somebody went down, I could be there. You knew, uh, Right. You could fill in wherever. Anywhere. Yeah. 
didn't matter. In fact, that's what I ended up doing one time. But So that was my two jobs. Most guys stayed on the cannon. They did their time, and they left. But they put me on a radio, and uh, you're 19 years old, and you're making some decisions like calling in a chopper that are really, really, really scary. It's a lot of pressure, right? A lot of pressure. Like to get it right. Well, you're scared to death. You're going to get more people hurt. Oh, that's a lot of pressure. So an officer or a sergeant can say, call the dust off, and you're like, there's no way in hell I'm calling the dust off. So now you had to evaluate, is a man dead or is he wounded? If he's dead, you don't need to call in the dust off. And this is crass, but it's a fact. But th- these are high-stakes decisions that you got to make, 19. Right? <clears throat> Jump back to when you said when you came back you got sick. Well, I got sick, evidently. I found out later on. I thought I had malaria, and I went to a hospital, and I remember being in a wheelchair, and all I could see was people's shoes, and I could tell by their shoes whether they were doctors or nurses, and they'd wheel me around. And a girl, one of the girlfriends I had that I wrote to, she saved every letter, and then 50 years later, whatever, she we talked, and she sent me the letters I sent her, and in one of the letters, I wrote to her and said, they've sent me to the rear, and they told me it's because of my nerves. So you don't remember that? No. I remember sitting in the wheelchair. It wasn't that I was crippled. I just think I was so, I lost, I was 135 pounds on six feet tall. So you, your your body kind of went into shock. Yeah. I and think, went into self-preservation mode, maybe? I guess. Of like, it's got to take care of itself because you're unable to handle any more of this pressure yeah. and the stress of be in, in the middle of what, what's going on in, in life and death. Evidently, is, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and our, our medic is the one that called the dust off. In other words, he's the one that told him, you need to get him in the rear. Because so, he could tell by your actions that yeah. something wasn't right with you, right? These yeah. guys, you guys know each other so intimately yeah. that he recognized that you're not in good shape, and it's not because of malaria. Right. But that's what they told me. And how long do you rem- do you know how long you were that, in the rear? According to that letter, I was there three weeks. And you were just in like a psych evaluation situation, or I don't know. Wow. There's a place in the rear that everybody can report to. In other words, you've got your little battery. It's called cannons. Well, in the rear, there's a guy that's like radar on Mash. Oh yeah. And where he lives in this Quonset hut in the rear, that's where you go stay if you're in transit or something. So I remember sitting on a cot there. And the same thing happened, I think I told you in R&R. I didn't go because I knew if I went to Australia, I was never Never going to come back. back. So I sat on a cot when I had R&R. And I would just walk to the mess hall and eat and go back. And that's that's all I remember. And it's like a blackout almost. Yeah. It's, It's amazing. We were talking earlier about how our bodies are designed to per, to protect us, right? To yeah. If we emotionally can't handle something of that significance, it, it takes care of us. Like it doesn't let us maybe remember all the things, and it kind of protects us from the emotional trauma that we're in the middle of. And I, I I've experienced some of this myself, um, because trauma is relative, right? Yeah, that's right. And um, it, it's really incredible that that that. God designed us to to protect like that. Yeah, and you don't realize it when it's happening. <clears throat> no. You don't have a clue. Mm-mm. So it took me 45 at least years to listen, read, and pay attention and figure out the whole Vietnam thing. That's why I'm able to share it today. Wow. I couldn't have told you anything 40 years ago, except right. I was mad and I was drunk and da-da-da. 
So the second wrong thing that happened was as the war went on, the canisters that are part of a projectile, it's just like when a shell ejects out of a pistol or a rifle, the shell is called a canister on a cannon. Well, they were made of brass. And they came from Red Rock Arsenal because it said it on the ammo boxes. So anyway, we would have spent rounds. So you pick up the canisters and you put them in a big net and then they take them to the rear and recycle them, I guess. So what they did was they changed the canister to called a wraparound, which is some kind of an alloy that was like the biscuit things you hit on the counter. That's what it looked like. It was wrapped around on a spiral. Okay, so you... Were they lighter? Yeah, they were lighter. And cheaper, cheaper. Cheaper. Cheaper made. So what happened was, if you hired, if it was 115 degrees out and you fired 100 rounds, the tube would swell. Mm. The barrel of the cannon would get so hot that the canister wouldn't fit. Now, the brass ones, it didn't matter, but these stuck. And they'd go three quarters of the way in. Then you had to hit them with your hand to make them go in the rest of the way. Now, there's two things you got to understand is that every time you have to do that again, you're wasting time getting around out to the the guys you're trying to help. So we got to where we would rear back and we'd kick it the edge of the round. Like literally with your foot. With your boot to knock it in the rest of the way because you're in a hurry. All the time you're firing a cannon, all that's on your mind is protecting the guys that are out there. Yeah, the weight of your... Exactly. It's the not guys just, that are also probably don't want to be there necessarily. Yeah, and they're just because they're out there and they're praying to God to get artillery. That you do your job right, right? So, yeah, that's a again. You're in a spot where you're, you're like set wrong up or to right. Fail. I got to do this because there's a lot of human right. lo- beings' lives depending on me executing my job quickly and efficiently. Okay, so now we're firing these wraparound <laughs> rounds and no. Lifer complains. He doesn't call the rear and say, this is not working. Nobody says nothing because we keep getting them. You keep doing your job. So a kid named Joe from Missouri kicks around, hits the primer, and it explodes. Okay, you can imagine a canister not all the way in exploding backwards because of the recoil. Well, the, the cannon didn't set it off. It was the canister that recoiled. So it explodes with... Several bags of powder into it. Joe gets his half his body blowed off and goes oh. out the back into the cannon. And you got to know that on his right, one foot away, is a gunner. And on the other side is an assistant gunner. One does elevation, one does windage. So three guys get hurt. Joe's gone because of these wraparound canisters. Okay, when they do the big numbers in the rear and the contracts and the companies. They allow for collateral damage, they call it, which means draftees, you're going to die. It's no different than Normandy. So that was another thing that's always made me mad because Joe didn't need to die. No. He didn't need to get hurt. To save a few bucks, to save money, right? And I showed you the picture of the kid that got his face blown off. Well, he was right there. He's he's a foot away from that canister. And these are your... Your, your, your people you know your buddies that you're in this situation with yeah and at this point you need to understand that when you were on a hill with a battery of six cannons your world is about the size of a football field you don't leave it never you cannot leave you're not going anywhere everything you do is in that space for 
how for, long? For now, you for a year. You're inside oh a perimeter. God. Get it? Mentally, I don't know how. Uh, let alone from the noise and the percussion and the the stakes of not only your own life but of those that you're protecting. Right? Like just that alone, people couldn't even handle that mentally. Being on a that postage stamp for a year, like stuck. That has got to be a hopeless feeling, maybe. Not to put words in your mouth, but I, I can't imagine what. Well, I can tell you, Jeremy, I was scared and mad for a year. You can add any other emotion you want. Diarrhea, nerves, whatever. The fact is, you are scared and you're mad, and you take turns with each of them. Mm. That's what you do. That's what I did. No relief from it. You can't get away. Okay, so... <clears throat> We're in this small area. And sorry, just to back up to Joe, that happens. Somebody probably writes a report, sends it to the back, and they're like, collateral damage. Right. Keep going. KIA. Keep doing what you're doing. KIA. There's no, they don't need to explain anything. And then the lieutenant has to write a letter or somebody does. I never believed any of that. I don't know that he did. I don't. I think they have a standard letter that they send. Your son was grave, brave, and he died in action. And da da da. They don't mm. say he kicked a canister and the primer went off. I don't think. Yeah, his parents never knew what happened to him. I don't think so. I don't know because it's like I said. When anybody got hurt or left the hill, you never saw him again, and you never heard what happened to him. The lifers knew, and the officers knew, but they wouldn't tell us. And I don't, I still to this day not, don't know why other than it would have made us matter, but we never knew whether the person lived or died, period, because it's not like they wrote you back. It isn't the brotherhood like World War II where you get together every year no. and have a pint and celebrate. There was no reunions of any sort on the hill I was on. And that's, I mean, even even if out in the outside, what you what you say you called it? Uh, the world. In the world, back in the world, back at home, you probably wouldn't have hung out with some of these guys just because you had, had didn't have the same interests, right? Right. But there's something about going through something with somebody that does bring you together. Like you're in something together, whether you choose that person or not. And I can't imagine the emotional aspect of, not only did Joe die, but the ones that got hurt, that you have some buy-in to who they are, right? Because you're a human. You're they're a human, and you're in this thing together that has brought you together. And there's some sort of brotherhood that comes along with being in turmoil with one another, right? Mm-hmm. And then they they medic out or something, and to never hear if they lived or died, like just that emotionally. But at the time, being that age, you probably don't even know how to process any of that, right? Like, that's stuff that you figure out when you get back. And like you said, in the last 50 years, you're, like, yep. working through, right? Yep. That's right. That's how it worked. You didn't know. Nobody – you didn't think about it because you were kind of busy being scared. Yeah. And mad. And fear is a very powerful emotion. Yeah. And and there, the good news is <laughs> – if it's such a word, is that they were no longer on the hill, win, lose, or draw. They didn't have to be there anymore. Yeah, the fear's gone. So that's why when people die around me that my age and stuff, I say rest in peace. Mm. You're done, partner. Mm. I don't like to see people suffer, so 
I'm crass or whatever, but rest in peace. I take literally. You're done now. You don't have to worry about a thing. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier about the concussion of cannons. Something I wanted to tell you was that if you can picture us living underground with sandbags over the top of us, and there's six cannons in a really small area, because the closer they could be, the easier it was to do the math to calibrate them. Get it? Mm-hmm. Because each cannon, it was a different number. Sure. Okay. So now you're laying there in a bunk, and a charge seven was seven bags of powder. That means you're going as far as that round can go. And how far is that? Seven miles. Your was, cannon could shoot seven miles? And it was the smallest cannon in Vietnam. Wow. Everybody learned on what they called a 105. Well, we were on a 10-deuce, which was smaller. Did that... Were they more accurate because they were smaller? No, they were more movable. Oh, they were light, more trans... They could pick us up and move us. Uh, and gotcha. they were faster. To load and reload. You got to understand there's a crank on it with a wheel on the back. And if you cranked it, you could turn that cannon 360 degrees without... Mm. without Moving the tires. Without picking it up. It sat up on the, <clears throat> off the ground on a pedestal. Mm. So one guy jumped on the end of the barrel with the fattest guy there, which was nothing. And then the other guy would start cranking. You could turn it around really quick if you had I gotcha. to. Because you got to understand, if you got a full fire mission going, the Viet Cong always knew which way you were shooting. So all they had to do was be on the other side. Yeah. They couldn't get hit. So anyway, you're in this hooch, and you're laying there, and you're trying to sleep, and all of a sudden a charge sound seven round goes off just above your sandbags. Well, the concussion of that knocks all the dust down from the sandbags. You inhale it, and that's the same dirt that was put in the sandbag that took him out of the ground that had been sprayed with Agent Orange. That's how I got Agent Orange, was through what? the through the inhaling of oh, the dust, dust of the ground that was sprayed. That was in the sandbags that was to save you. Right. So real And qu- the water. Real quickly, before we get into the water, because this is interesting and noteworthy, um, you you brought your photo album that I got to see, and this is the one bummer about audio only is is I can't share these. Well, maybe I can share a few of them um, on social media, but th- these houses that you guys built were uh, like basically like a part of a granary, right? Like a half silo of, of corrugated metal, right? Well, there were that and ammo boxes, and then ammo boxes were like the like the foundation. You'd set and the sides. And the sides. And you'd set this metal. On top of the roof. And then put sandbags on top of that to protect you from shrapnel. Right. Like the pictures of of, of this, um, which you have, are amazing of the conditions in which you guys lived. Is like, doesn't look great for a long weekend, let alone for a <laughs> year. But that's fascinating that that's where the dust that you're inhaling because of the percussion of the power of three bags of powder going off now you'd be dead sound asleep well and then maybe you weren't on call that night or something and then the rounds start going off like that's what you'd wake up to yeah because after a while see when when the the college boys were calling out which cannon and this and that all the guns hear it so it's kind of a warning to you that you may get called because once one gun finds out the place to fire, they might call in two more guns. Gotcha. They might call in all six, and they may just use one. So what really happens is you're sitting there, and one round goes off. And the guys out in at the infantry see where it lands. Then they recalibrate. 
So there's a time lapse. Could be five minutes, could be 15 before you fire another round. So all of a sudden, the other one goes off. That's what wakes you up. Man. And all you do is just <clears> yell <throat> and you're mad and you're inhaling this dust. And, and, and I mean, just the sleep deprivation alone. And yeah, because when one cannon's in, you're entered. You know, you're, oh, you're, you're, you're not up. on your cannon, but you're still not you're sleeping up. either because yeah. you know that you're going to get called or not get called. Dang. And uh, so you can, you know, it's, it's like 24 hours a day, basically. You're on call. That's why you don't go anywhere. There's nowhere to go anywhere. You're yeah. out in a war zone. So the Agent Orange thing, I just, it's so ironic because Jeremy, you and I are close friends, okay? The parallels between us are phenomenal. You asked me about coming here. Last night, a friend of mine called me that I sold a horse to that's a cowboy. And he's, I'm going to use the word traveler because you're going to hear it again. His good friend just died from Agent Orange. And it mm. took, he's the same age as me. And it took all these years and he finally cashed in. So the night before I'm going to talk to you, then my friend's friend cashes in. So there's. Yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. It's something you and I have done ever since we met, the parallels. So. Let, can can you describe to me what Agent Orange, like, literally is? Okay. It's a chemical. It was a defoliant. And it was sprayed all over the jungles and up in the hills. And, like, where I was involved in the artillery, the LZ I was on, which is called a landing zone, first thing they do is spray the ridge. Okay. The, and all the brush dies. Because I wasn't in the palm tree jungle you picture. I was up in the hills in the brush. So all the foliage dies. So now they come in and torch it. They burn the hill off. So the whole ridge burns. And you've got pictures of it 150 yards down both sides so you can see them coming. That's why they used Agent Orange? Yeah. It was a defoliant. It was to kill the... Kill the vegetation so you could see the enemy. I did not know that. Well, in a triple canopy jungle, which is where I wasn't, it didn't work. The top canopy died and fell down on the guys. So they had to walk over the top of it that had already been sprayed, and it didn't do any good anyway. Okay. But they they got it too, right? They got down it too. There. They got it all kinds of different ways. There was people in the Air Force that sat on planes that had carried it, and they died from Agent Orange. The chemical was in the webbing, in the seating, in the plane. The chemical. So, and, and, and just to clarify, this is something that our government did. Yes, our government did it. And, and it, used it thinking it was safe, not knowing. No, no. They knew it. Monsanto, they knew it was lethal. It's illegal. It's like DDT when we were kids. It's illegal. But they wanted to do it in the jungle, and they're, they're acting like nobody's out there, so we can do it now. Well, the Canadian team said that it's in the ground for five Hundred years. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I know a Vietnamese woman that I've learned to know over the years because she's a haircutter. And I asked her about it. And she said where she lived, which was way down south, she said, Our our village never saw it. It didn't happen. Up where you were is where they have the miscarriages and the tumors and all the cancer of the villagers, you know, the mountain yard people and the people that live up there where I was at. In the areas where the heavy fighting was. And it's still affecting them today. Today. It's killing. Babies are born retarded. All kinds of tumors. And lymphomic cancer is the big number one deal. The first indicator for Agent Orange is diabetes, which I don't have. 
Now there's 500 things, symptoms, that they're finding out and letting loose the information over the years of things that deal. What happened to me specifically is it's in my throat. My trach... From bringing it, breathing it in. From breathing it in. And uh, my lungs have always tested okay, but my throat is where the chemical stayed. And that's why I choke, and that's why I can't breathe well, and I sound like a lunger, but it's not my lungs. Hmm. And I'll just mention that this ASEA stuff I've been drinking for a couple years helped the epiglottis, which is above it. It was dead, half dead, so I choked 20 times a day. I don't choke 20 times a day now. And what is this stuff? It's called ASEA, and I spoke about it on my YouTube channel, and it's... A lady from Australia told me about it, but it's made in Salt Lake City. Really? Yeah, it has something to do with salt water, Great Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, fact, flat out, it's helped me a lot to get my health back. And I, it rejuvenates dead cells. And that, do you, how do you absorb it? Just drink it. You I drink it? Four glugs in the morning, four glugs in the evening. And I get it by the bottle, by the case. Is it liquid? You just yeah. Dump you it just in take the cap off and slam it. You don't mix it with anything. Oh, you just straight up drink it. I do. Some people put juice. I'm sure. But right. I, I just I'm in a hurry. So, and you've seen how long have you been drinking this? Stuff? Year, a little over a year. And it, and you've seen I've huge... seen improvement in the skin cancer. A lot of it's gone away because I'm so white. I'm clear, you know, and the, and that's disappeared. A I've lot no, of it. I've noticed that your complexion. My complexion's is, better. I've never seen it this good. Yeah. Right. And I'm getting older. Yeah. It's supposed to be the other way. And it looks, yeah, looks. you look great. And please know that I'm not a salesman of it. I don't sell it. It's not Avon. I don't do it. I told him when I bought it, <clears throat> I said, I'm. It's, it's like Avon. I said, I will not be selling it. I will not be a broker. I will do nothing. No, you're doing this to help somebody that and may he, be in your spot, right? And right. Like you found a remedy that's helping you, and maybe they could find some relief as well. When I tell these veterans, I said, it doesn't cure anything, but it helps everything. Mm. So I've had veterans over the last year get a hold of me and say, Pat, it's working. I have whatever their problem is. You know, a lot of guys got jungle rot, which is your skin rotting away because of the humidity and the their feet rotted. You know, you got foot rot. And you know what foot rot is mm-hmm. in cattle. Well, evidently, I carried the scars for that for quite a while on my side. But anyway, they said it's cured it. Really? And uh, other guys will say, it's helped me breathing. Um, It's helped my psoriasis. It's helped my energy. Stuff I've never even heard of. Right. That's why there's so many symptoms. See, and the VA won't go full out and say, look, everything that's wrong with you is because of Agent Orange. They won't do it. Well, they don't want that on their... No, not until we're all dead. See, the World War II guys, there's only a couple left. So now they'll, they'll, 60 minutes, they'll say, well, this is what got them. Yeah. We all know that as veterans. And then you consumed it in the water, too? Yeah, the water we received, because we were on out in the bush, you don't drill wells and you don't have springs. So they bring water to you in what they call a blivet, which was a great big rubber ball full of water. And then you tapped it with a valve and you got your, you carried your water down to use it to shower and cook and all that stuff. And it came from a water table that was contaminated by Agent Orange because a lot of kids, Air Force, Army, whatever, that sprayed it, planes, helicopters, they'd come back and they'd have 500 gallons, they dumped it on the ground. They didn't know. Mm. I mean, I don't know. They if had no idea what it was. They just dumped it out. 
And it went in the water source. So it went into the groundwater that they brought to us to drink. So we had it in the water and in the ground. That's why people say, well, hell, you weren't in the jungle. Well, no, I was up on a ridge, but I got Agent Orange. Twice. Yeah. Two ways. Two ways. And then, too, that what they call non-point pollution, which you know about being around the ranching world, is that you could spray here, and then the drift would carry it across because of the breeze. You know, they always mm-hmm. you've seen that. But um, the, the other thing I wanted to tell you about was I was awarded a Bronze Star. Okay, and it's not something that I tell everybody because when you it's kind of anticlimactic when you get one. Okay, we had a cannon knocked out and crew hurt. And so me and some other guys jumped over the wall, the parapet wall, which is the sandbags around your cannon. And then we took over a gun that was closest to the problem. And I told you this cannon pivoted. Well, we took it off the pivot. It's like a lazy Susan. And you can jack it up and get that off of there. And we rolled the cannon right up to the wall, tore the sandbags down because we couldn't get the barrel low enough and fired on a what they call a CFZ. Now, this is another one of the things that I know the government did wrong. The, the people that were running our war did wrong. A controlled fire zone, it was illegal to fire on it because it's supposed to be a friendly village. Well, the Viet Cong would come to a friendly village, shoot at you, but you couldn't shoot back. Because they knew America's not going to let you That's shoot right, it. because it says in the rule book back in the <clears throat> rear that they're reading in Chapter mm-hmm. 7 that you can't do that. Well, our captain said, hell with that, and we, we fought back and took care of the problem. So that was wrong, what they did to us. Those men got hurt and killed because of a rule. All right. The captain in charge that told us to do it was relieved the following day. So us draftees, the only person that we actually liked was that captain. Because he, he had your back. He had our back. Well, he got escorted off the hill. Do you, do you have any idea what you think what might have happened to him? I have no idea. I think on the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, there's some rule that says you can't, if you fire on a CFZ, you're going to get whatever. So I don't know if he got discharged. I don't know. Same old thing. We knew nothing about anything that happened as soon as it left the hill. So I guess the whole thing is that I had a... It's called an epiphany now that I'm so educated. <laughs> and I've been up since midnight, and about 2 o'clock this morning, Jeremy, it dawned on me what happened and what's going on with us. You and I are we are like brothers from a different mother because we've been the exact same situation only 30 years apart. We've gone over this before. You and I have been in the same country. And here's what I believe. You, me, and a whole bunch of people that are on this deal, the term is trapped. I was trapped on a hill in a war, and I couldn't get away. Impossible. There's nowhere to go. I had to deal with what was in front of me. Then I finally got to leave. You, as a child, were trapped. You couldn't go anywhere. You didn't know what to do. You just thought, well, I'm trapped. This is life. This is life. This is the way it is, and I all I got to do is survive. That's all I got to do. So your brain tells you to survive. 
So a whole lot of people that we know, that's what happened to them. They were literally a victim and they were trapped. Okay, so then you get turned loose. Now, here's the funny part to me. Not funny, haha. We are travelers. You are blatantly a good example of why you and I are travelers. Because we were trapped, I believe that now the rest of our lives... We have a good home, we've got a good family, we've got it made, and yet we still travel. The reason we travel is because X amount of time goes by, 10 days or two months, and you know you have to go somewhere. Hmm. Wow, that's that's very profound, and you're right. Yeah. I, I, I built my life and my company and what I do around, not all the time, but even like this trip. Yeah. And I think deep down my wife knows it. And she blesses me to go on these trips. And she that's very interesting. Yep. But I think you're right, Pat. My, my wife gets it, too. And uh, Jay Harney is a famous cowboy in the cowboy world. I know Jay. I knew Jay. Great okay. guy. Jay was married for a long time, had a beautiful wife, wonderful family, and he always traveled. He never, ever once talked about his father. Okay? Everybody has a trap. I'm not saying that was his, but I'm telling you that mm-hmm. he always traveled. My friend Lincoln in Arizona, he goes to Africa and puts in solar systems. He told me one time when we were gathering, he says, you know, I promised myself I would never raise my voice to my children in the corral. He said, I got, I grew up getting yelled at. That was his trap. So when he got old enough, he left. I can name you, just go on and on. And of course, I just know the cowboy world, but there's a whole lot of people I know now after this morning that hit me like a brick. That's why we travel. Hmm. Cause that's my wife good. gets it. Yeah. You know, we've got it made. I've got a wonderful life and she knows that I deliver horses to people that buy them from me. One of the reasons is because I need to travel. Yeah. That's really profound. I, I, and I, I'm the same. I have the most amazing wife and, and three sons and a beautiful daughter and, and I've built, I've built a life that I don't need a vacation from. Right. So what you're saying is landing on me in a different way because I have this tension. I do, I do have a life I don't need a vacation from. I don't need to go to the beach. I don't need to go to the mountains. I am so in love with the people that I've surrounded myself with and what I get to do, including this, that I don't need to leave it for vacation's sake. Man, I I have also built my life around traveling and getting out and coming to do this and my the the business I built, I don't even work it, we don't even work in my state. Right. And I love it. Yeah. And there's something freeing about it and I think that this is very helpful to people to understand that maybe have felt trapped that it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Because you carry a little guilt, you know, because you're like, why am I leaving my wife? Why am I leaving my horses, my my kids? And a lot of people clock in and clock out for 30 years. Okay, that's fine. That's what makes this whole thing work. But we don't. Uh, That's a death sentence. We don't clock in. We do 10 things. And one of them is we move around. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and I think that there's two sides to this now that that you're bringing this up. There's a difference between traveling and being on the run. Yeah. 
because for 20 years I was on the run yeah. trying to outrun my pain, right? Yeah. I was trying to outrun the, the abuses of my childhood that turned into addiction, right? Cause I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. So I didn't have this insight. And it, when the, when it got, when it got too hot, I would leave. Right. And that could be, I, if I found the right girlfriend and I started feeling emotions towards her that were deep, I would bounce. Right. Cause of, of my abandonment with women and not to get into my story, but the point is, is like that, that's a self-defense mechanism. It can be also is to try to keep ahead of your, your mm-hmm. past. Right. And outrun it. And I quit doing that, but I still have this great need to be a traveler and you put words to it and it lands well with me because again, I don't, I don't need a vacation from my life, but there is something f- that makes me feel alive and free when I'm on the road. Yeah. It's because we were trapped. I was sitting inside a perimeter crowned by wire and, and, uh, no way out C4 and grenades and stuff that if you went outside, you were going to die period. Well, now I don't have that problem. And that makes sense to the big wide open spaces, right? That's why the cowboy life is so appealing and enduring to you is because it really represents freedom for you, right? Freedom, exactly. I can ride a really long ways. I can make a 30-mile circle, and I'm like, well, so what else you want to do? What Besides getting sober, what do you attribute... I mean, you've had to do work, right, to get through some of that being trapped. Um, What are some of the things that you did for maybe somebody that's out there that's feeling trapped right now? What are some of the things that you've done over the years that have helped you find peace and freedom from this horrible emotional, physical, mental, spiritual war that you were involved in? Okay. When it finally dawned on me, my big three... God, Popeye, and Barney Fife. And I hate to be redundant, but... Do it. Hit it again. It it dawned on me one day. It's like, you know what? God's there. And I talk to him when I'm in a jackpot. And when I find something I've lost, I always say, thank you, God. That's That could be my pocket knife. Okay. Mm-hmm. Moving right along. Popeye will tell you, I am what I am. So it dawned on me one day that I am what I am. You help me with that. We talked about what are we going to do to win this competition in a ranch rodeo. He said, just do what we do. That hit me right over the head. It's like, you don't have to choke. This is what you do for a living. So I am what I am. Barney Five, something comes up. Don't dwell on it. Nip it in the bud. Take care of it. I don't like you. I quit. Goodbye. People make fun of me because I say goodbye real fast. Well, I'm not kidding. Goodbye. I'm done with that. Okay, so... That's that's one of the reasons. And the other one is, is the horse. Because Deb and I talked about this morning. My good wife, she got up when I got up this morning, early. And I told her, I said, you know, at a clinic, I ride all the horses. And every time I get on a horse, I always tell everybody I'm going to ride it around the arena one time to find out if it's lame or has a sore spot or anything. That's not That's not why. By the time I've gone around that arena, that horse says, I got it. Mm. I trust you. You have no ego. You have nothing. All you're doing is asking me to turn left, back, up. 
that has put me in a position, and I don't even know what the word is, but it's a feel that I know I'm good at something. And the horse knows it. If anybody else knows it, gravy. But I don't care. Mm -hmm. I know the horse knows it. And that's the one thing I know. I can go down and have my horse stand at the gate. And I'm like, cool. And then therapy. I went to therapy for the Vietnam reality. At what point in your life did you do that? Ten years ago, if that. Because I finally kept, I thought, you know what? I got to get rid of this. Did you just run into the same walls? Yeah, I kept having these same dreams, same problems, anxiety. And so I went to therapy through the VA. And the guy told me, he says, what What can you actually do about it today? What can you do about them guys that disappeared? What can you do about that prejudice? Nothing. Let it go. Did that help? Yeah, it did. It <clears throat> helped me a lot to... because then I started focusing on me. And I've been cowboying for 50 years, and I learned more in the last five years about horses than I've ever known my entire life. Do you think it there go hand in hand, letting go of what you don't have control over and that and and letting that pain out yep. and putting because it's almost like we have we only have so much capacity within when within us right within our heart and our soul and our our, our being yeah and if and if that stuff occupies a portion of it there's only so much room right yeah and if you're able to exchange that for something else and hopefully it's something beautiful and good and positive and in the right way yeah it does empower. It does help us get through um, trauma and heartache and not being able to sleep. Right? I mean, I, I, I've, I've been healed from all of it, man. Like I, I was on when I got sober. I, I couldn't for seven years. I had to eat sleeping pills. Like I would have panic attacks if I would at seven o'clock remember that I was out, mm -hmm. and it didn't matter where I was in the country. Wow, traveling around the country working. Yeah, I would have to go find a store that carried this exact particular. Right, it's a it's another crutch. Mm -hmm. It's another thing that I need this to survive because I can't sleep at night because of what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. Like there's there's that all that stuff that's in there, but getting it out in a healthy way, then it creates room capacity for more room to understand the horse. To understand That's relationship, right. to understand, have more capacity for compassion and love even, right? Yeah. Because that place was occupied by fear and, fear and pain, pain and torment yeah. and nightmares. And what a beautiful exchange. But you have to have the courage, first off, to recognize, I need help, right? Yeah. And that's step one. I need to talk to somebody about this, which is why this, right? Exactly. This part of this conversation is if you find yourself... Whether you're in Pat's shoes or my shoes or in between, the the hero is the guy that has the humility, right, to go, hey, I need help. I can't do this on my own. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then what you do, I told you when I got here, you know, I've been up since midnight dwelling on this interview. Well, I already feel better. Okay. Some other human out there, if... If what I've told is my story, and he says, you know what? That happened to me. That's it. 
because we always feel like we're the only ones, no matter Alone. how many people there are that had the same exact problem. But you always feel like it's your deal. Well, I don't. I want you to share it because I trust you and you're my friend, and you won't take advantage of this because that's something veterans don't like to do. Yeah. Well, it's a great honor, and I mean, in my hand right now, I'm holding the bronze medal of honor. Bronze Star. Bronze Star. In a case. That represents probably a lot of mixed emotions for you. Sadness is the main one. Yeah. Because I, I if you take any big event like Thanksgiving or Christmas, and if there happens to be any young person there, boy or girl that's 19... 60,000 of them at that age died in Vietnam. So that medal is not stack up to what reality was. So I think I'm done, Jeremy. I think I've covered everything. And and there again, it's for that guy out there that says, you know what? Because we don't like to whine, but he's going to say, that's a, that's all be damn. That's what happened to me. Yeah. And I, one thing I'm learning too in this, and we'll wrap up because I know you got to get going, is understanding the difference between um, telling your story and having the courage to do so. And I think as men, and especially cowboys, we wrestle with with that. Like we don't want to be a victim, right? And we we sometimes land in this uh, false humility zone of like. Well, I don't want to hear. Nobody wants to hear me whine about anything, and I—that's I, a lie. I think. I think that the to be true to yourself is what you're doing is having the courage to be like you know for that one guy, because because you've you've found great humility and asked for help. Now, for me in my story, how dare I not try to give away this freedom that I found? That would that would keep me up at night now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah to make this all about me. And so I applaud you and honor you for recognizing and finding help at the VA and talking to someone about this so that now all these years later, cause you probably wouldn't be able to do this without that. Right. You wouldn't no way in hell. And now you get to be the guy that gives hope. Yep. And at the end of the day, when we talk about legacy and I think about my friend, Pat Puckett, yeah, you taught me how to throw the Del Viento and the Johnny Blocker, and tie down wild cattle, and lead wild cattle. All those things, but this is the legacy that I'm always going to remember you for. Good. Good. Is that you were a fellow hope giver. Because at the end of the day, nobody gives a damn about how good of a hand you are. They remember how you treat them. Yeah. Right? Right. And we're repping for a whole bunch of people, you and I. Oh, this ain't about us. Yeah, no, like we're repping for them. We're saying it out loud. And they deserve it, you know, because you and I are lucky. Can you imagine, I'll, I'll say it one more time, the things that you and I have done, when I was 19, I don't even know if you were born, but when you came in, then you got trapped. And then I went on, and then you showed up where I was. And then I went on, Da-da-da, 30 years apart, I think we did the math on. Well, I think there's a reason for that, and that's why I believe in God. Because God gives us a will, 
The choices that you and I made, whether we know it or not, ended up being the same. I think that's pretty cool. That's why we're so close. It's amazing that we're not a statistic. It's amazing that we're not dead or in prison. That's the road I was on and probably the road you were on too, right? Like the fact that, yeah, yeah, the fact that I didn't wrap myself around a telephone pole Mm -hmm. is a miracle. And there's too many coincidences for it not to be God. You yeah, you, you, you couldn't have planned this. You can't. You We're not that sharp. You can't. So, again, Pat, I honor you. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your courage and bravery in telling telling the the other side of the story. And um, I just appreciate you, and I, I love you dearly. And you're you're a good good man. And I'm, uh, it's an honor for you to, uh, for me to call you my friend. Yeah, it's that simple, Jeremy. Thank you very much because we're 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 it. We're it for life. Well, thanks again. Adios, guys. Adios.